Uh, lots to hear on your radio today. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran, and here's what you might have missed. It's lush. I think lush is a great word. I think you've got this beautiful green scenery with the hills. I just fell in love with, with Ireland. Um, it's a place very close to my heart. What would you call physical trademarks? So Usain Bolt's lightning bolt pose. That one? That one, yeah. The arms uh, to the side, you yeah. have to pay him You're going to have to pay him now, yeah, oh, unfortunately, yeah. Even though you need it on radio, but... Uh, <laughs> you sort of wonder, what is Matt Hancock's plan here? Trying to spin both places is an odd thing. Another thing he says that he's doing this is to create awareness for dyslexia. I mean, this is... a the, the, the frustration that I have. I'm dyslexic and I feel that you can create awareness without having to go on TV and eat various parts of an animal. And we'll start in the morning. It's overworked. One of my favourite Liverpudlians was talking baking traditions, bread culture and that Hollywood handshake. Ryan Tuberty was catching up with Great British Bake Off judge and fellow baker Paul Hollywood. I'm, I'm flicking uh, open the page 18 on your book because I was intrigued by... The chocolate orange banana bread. Good Lord, oh. I'm, I'm making that this weekend for sure. It is amazing. It's, I mean, it's one of those recipes that during lockdown, everybody seems to be making banana bread, which, I mean, it's been a big thing for years, but it literally took off. It was trending yeah. every day in the baking world. You know why? Because... Well, it's easy to make. <laughs> it's easy to make. Because if I can make it, Paul... Anyone can make it, and that's. But I love the twist, though, because I like chocolate orange. I know it's controversial, uh, but we 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 can go further into that in a moment. But uh, four four bananas is quite a generous uh, helping of bananas you're you're throwing I, in there. Yeah, I do like the flavour. I mean, I think you, I mean it makes it quite um, liquid. But on the bake, if you have a nice slow bake, it opens it up and keeps it nice and moist inside, which is exactly what you want with a with a banana bread slash cake which is what it is essentially bread versus cake we could again another another debate that ongoing. how's life with you paul are you, are you keeping well yes yeah, good no it's good i sort of did all my uh, bake offs this year yeah. including the um one for rocco which we did the american bake off as well which we finished and we did the very first celebrity american one which comes out December, I think, on the Rocky Channel over in the States. And who should we look out for on that? Who's who? Oh, Ma- Marshawn Lynch. I mean, footballer. <laughs> really? He was, yeah, he was a handful, but a really, <laughs> really nice guy, actually. We had good fun. Um, you're, you, you were in Ireland some years ago um, to film City, City Bakes and... Yeah. I mean, I'm not. I'm not looking for you to to tell us how great we are because it's too obvious. But be honest, be honest, because you're not. You're a straight shooter. That's why I like what you do on on, yeah, on, yeah. on the Bake Off. What what yeah. what strikes you about Ireland when you get here? I love it. I I, I love the people. I love Dublin. I think it's such a. It, there's such a buzz in, in Dublin when you're walking around. I've never been there, and I've been when like since I've been baking, I've been back a couple of times. But I just fell in love with the place. Um, I know family-wise there's DNA in my blood that goes back to Ireland. I'm yeah. trying to dig around in that to try and find out. But I, I, I love Ireland. I did a lot of travelling when I was filming in Ross Cray as well. Yes. I had friends in Galway and Wexford. Um, and so, I, I yeah, it, it's lush. I think lush is a great word. I think you've got this beautiful green scenery with the hills. I just fell in love with with Ireland. Um, it's a place very close to my heart. Well, it would be in the sense that Liverpool and Ireland are it's kind quite, of joined at the hip, aren't they? We are, yeah. I mean, uh, what's the most eastern eastern city in Ireland? <laughs> well, Liverpool. Yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> and Paul spoke about filming in Ross Cray with the monks. It was, uh, I think the prior at the time was Kevin, and we did... Um, oh, yeah. 
I was making bread with the monks because they've got a beautiful old bakery in there. And the problem is a lot of the monks aren't picking up the mantle and making bread. Uh, and they were worried that no one was going to pick it up. I hope someone has, because that was 20 years ago now. Yeah. So I went in there, made a few breads with them, and we, we gave it to the guys, um, the school over in Roscray Schools. So they make a lot of the bread for there. And then after a couple of days being with them, filming with the monks, it was it was I loved it. I was so chilled out. Yeah. And then the prior called me to his office, and he said, Paul, I need to talk to you. And I said, oh, yeah, what's the problem? He said, no, there's no problem. He said, I think you should become a monk. Really? And I went, Right. I said, there's a couple of problems with that, really. I said, <laughs> one, I'm not Catholic. <laughs> Two, I'm married. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But besides that, I would join you in a heartbeat. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't try to push it further and convert you or anything on the spot, no. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. He showed me around the Abbey and yeah. uh, the, the, the beautiful chalice they've got around the back, the cup with all the, the jewels on it. It's just stunning. It's an amazing, historically, it's an amazing plate with a place with a link to the Pope. And I, I found the whole place beautiful and I was totally chilled out there. I managed to leave the Abbey a couple of times. There was a pub across the road, if I remember rightly. And I managed to get out the gate and dive into a pub and had a couple of uh, couple of drinks, which is nice. Yeah, well, you need to mix, you know, your your pleasure with your religious epiphanies, obviously. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, isn't it interesting though, that the, the the monks and I'm sure the nuns were the same in terms of baking and traditions? It could be honey. Mm -hmm. It could be, you know, religious yeah. orders tend to have this sort of uh, background, don't they? Yeah. It's it's a discipline, isn't it? And it's a very when you think about it, it's a very old uh, tradition. Baking mm. it goes back, you know, tens of thousands of years. Really, we've been baking, but really, the first sourdough goes back about probably about four thousand years to ancient Egypt. But because it's an historical thing, and biblically it was mentioned, obviously, mm. as one of the ancient trades, along with tax collecting. So I mean, it, it's and fishing, but baking <laughs> has always been around. It's been in our DNA for for so long. I mean, I'm in the middle. Um, I've got this idea of doing this program about the history of bread. Yeah. And it does go back from um, Egypt all the way through to San Francisco. But there's a big story to be told about why we eat what we eat. I find it fascinating because it's basically the history of our cultures, you know. You, you could really do, couldn't you, a program not only on the history of food, but you could take, as you say, bread. And then you could do, yeah. you know, whatever other side of it might be. There's still so many, so many stories in food, essentially. Oh, it's it's amazing. I mean, the whole the whole thing about. I mean, we look at the Elizabethan times as mm. well with, uh, and with Henry when he was King Henry VIII. I mean, he had obviously a gout, um, but we know historically <laughs> that he used to enjoy wholemeal bread, which obviously is full of fibre. Um, and you know, ironically, it's fibre. You need that in a, di a good diet. And I think during the revolution as well, it was noted by the French noblemen that came over to the UK, mm. how full of stomach and rosier cheeked our, our, our peasants were because they were eating fruit and rye breads and wholemeal because the court had the pure white bread, which Elizabeth I really made her own. And, but the, the peasants were eating fruit, vegetables and rye okay. and wholemeal bread, which as we know now is a very good diet. Just the peasants were ahead of their time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> to go forward, you have to go back. That's always always been the way. Well, I I, I kind of chiming with that. We were talking about um, ancient Rome a few minutes ago, and and in the old days, as you know, if you were out, if you were tanned, you were a peasant yeah. because you were working in yeah. the land, and if you were well, pale, that's me. yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm doing it with tents. 
that explains your time. It'll be five in the tent. But I think, you know, in Rome, they had over 500 bakeries in and around Rome, which really? is incredible amounts. Yeah, huge amounts of bread making. They really made it a very political thing, though, uh, the use of flour, because they took over so many countries and they needed to till the land to get the flour. It may, amazing. And of course, then I mean, it, it, it's, it's like you're describing oil in Iraq, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, well, it is. It was, it was a trading thing. I mean, yeah. you look at ancient Egypt. They used to, the, the guys that built the pyramids were fed in, they're basically paid in, in bread and beer because you couldn't drink the water. So the beer and the bread was how they were paid. And weirdly, I know Egyptologists I've spoken to, you said all the teeth on a lot of the Egyptians at the time were worn down because there was sand, a lot of sand in their bread. And of course, it was grinding down their teeth. Oh, really? And I wonder, does that come, is that for the expression, any dough, like for money? Uh, if it was paid? Yeah, it was a payment. It was a form of payment. Yes, yeah, oh. so it was food, food and drink. Yeah. And Paul spoke about how living in Cyprus influenced his philosophy on bread. Absolutely. Well, I lived in Cyprus for six years. And yeah. Cyprus, again, the Greek culture with bread is, is huge over there. It's the, the thing I've always been into bread, obviously, has been my thing. But I've always wanted to bring bread to the centre of the table rather than sitting on a little side plate, this little white anemic roll, you know, I want to bring it to the centre of the table, which is where it is in most Mediterranean countries anyway. Why? I'm feed off it with tapenades and all sorts. Yeah. And that was the idea, you know, why, why I love bread so much, because it should be the focal point, you know. And I think, and again, I'm sorry, we're nerding out here, but I think in, in, in <laughs> like Odysseus and, and in the ancient Greeks, part of their travels around the world was you break bread. And if you break yeah. bread with somebody, it's like saying, come in through the front door. You're welcome to, to, the, to the group. To the group. It yeah. meant an exactly. awful lot. I mean, it, exactly. It wasn't an accident why Jesus chose to, you know, to choose himself as being the body, you know, the whole, the whole idea of bread has been a focal because it was the common man it was the association to everybody and everybody could get hold of bread yeah. bread has been the staple in our diet for certainly in the west for for de decades and and well hundreds and thousands of years but that's the way we are and we love our bread i mean i mean irish soda bread i yes. mean when I, was, when I was over in ireland trying the breads there it was just spectacular yeah. i was loving it absolutely loving it what was happening in the soda bread, because I, this is your, this is your, 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 your forte, obviously. But so, yeah. do, please tell me what what is happening in Irish soda bread that you're tasting that you're going, no, you've got something that we don't have, the secret sauce, yeah. what have you? What 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 is happening there? I, the thing is about the, the beauty of Irish soda bread is it's it's it's, it's actually its simplicity and the speed that you can do it because there's a there's a gratification within an hour if you want to make it that quick. And so the fact that you can have a loaf within an hour from scratch rather than using yeast is something that is incredible. Mm. I mean, it, you can't say it's akin to a scone because it isn't, but it's that same effect. You mix it together and throw it in the oven because you've got your buttermilk reacting with your bicarb to create the gases, to create the carbon dioxide, to give you the lift. But I like playing with savory flavors as well and throwing loads of savory things in there. I love cheese. Mm. Uh, Oxford cheese in there with a bit of onion. Oh, yeah, give it. I'd have that every day for breakfast. Oh, I could listen all day. Paul Hollywood from the Ryan Tupperty Show. And on today with Claire Byrne, the fascinating world of copyright and trademarks with business journalist Adam McGuire. What do the Pink Lady Apple, Darth Vader's heavy breathing, and Arnold Schwarzenegger's catchphrase, Hasta la Vista, baby, have in common? Well, the answer is 
that they're all trademarks. Basically, a phrase, symbol, colour, design or a combination of all of those that makes you stand out from competitors and allows consumers to recognise your product in the marketplace. So to take us through this world of copyright trademarks and patents and some of the stranger ones out there, I'm joined now in the studio by RTE business journalist Adam McGuire. Good morning, Adam. Hi, how are you? I'm very well. This is a strange and very interesting uh, one and it came up recently in a bit of a row between Pantone and Adobe. So what happened here? Yes, essentially this is a dispute between Adobe, they, they make the well-known editing software Photoshop uh, and Pantone, which is kind of like the gold standard of colours. You know, the reason being if you pick one of their colours, you know, it, in, it's the same in one place as anywhere else. So it's, you know, it's standardised kind of thing. And in the past, the, the Pantone colours were pretty much built into Photoshop and other Adobe products. But now they're being asked, asking users to pay a fee, $15 a month because the, the licence has expired. And if they don't, the Pantone colours that they're using in their designs turn to black even if it's in an old design if they open the file it used to be red now it turns black uh, because of, of this licence $15? $15 a month they're having yeah. a laugh yeah I know <laughs> <laughs> they, they are but I'm sure someone will pay it anyway. so you can own a colour now can you? Oh, kind of the idea of owning a colour isn't actually a new thing it has a very long history long before trademarks were, were a thing uh, hundreds of years ago if you wanted a colour for a painting or clothing or whatever else uh, you had to rely on what you found in nature and, and some colours were harder to come by for pigments uh, than others so it meant that you know a small number of people or even a country often had a monopoly over a particular colour so there's a stone called a lapis lazuli which uh, at one stage was more valuable than gold because it gave these really vivid blues if you think of the, the girl with the pearl par- earring the blue gorgeous uh, blues yeah, yeah. That, that, that shade yeah. of blue that's, uh, that's lapis lazuli uh, the main source of that though for hundreds of years was northern Afghanistan so it meant that you know that region effectively had a monopoly over this uh, colour nowadays of course much easier to produce your own colour you know, your phone can pick any colour you want out of millions when you're you know, putting something up on social media. But it hasn't stopped countless companies from trying to lay claim to particular uh, uh, colours uh, right up to today. Okay, so like who? Take us through who's been trying to own colours. Well, I think Coca-Cola is probably the best known example in the world. You know, I don't even have to say what colour I'm talking about <laughs> that they trademark. But if you're still guessing, red is, is the colour of, of Coca-Cola. The story goes that originally they used red to distinguish their barrels from the barrels containing alcohol because there were taxes that applied. Uh, but then it stuck and it became part of the marketing from the 1940s onwards. Uh, another one is, is Tiffany's, the, the jewellery brand that powder blue box and bag that's a trademark mm. colour so another jewellers can't use that colour a delivery company UPS has a trademark on its brown the brown in its vans and uniforms 3M has a trademark as well on the specific shade of yellow that's used in post-it notes so it's, a, a it's wide range just so fa- because I, I mean I can understand Tiffany wanting to trademark the, the branding you know the logo but I suppose then you are leaving the door open to another jeweller using your favourite powder blue colour. Yeah, exactly. And just having a different name on it and you're not really going to, you're going to see the blue box before you see the, the name necessarily. So does that mean then that no one else can use those colours if they're well, trademarked? Well, not really. I mean, it, it is nearly impossible to actually stop people from using a specific colour. You know, even in that Adobe Pantone dispute, some people have published a free to access database of the same colours effectively that anyone can download. They don't need to pay the licence. But really what a, a trademark on a colour does is form a layer in, in a brand's defence against copycats. So if you were to launch a soft drink in a red can you wouldn't necessarily be getting a legal letter from Coca-Cola there are others out there but if your brand name was printed on it in that kind of script font uh, and, and you use white in the font then you'd be starting to get yourself into trouble uh, Heineken for example successfully sued another Dutch beer brand called Alm about a decade ago it was using green in its labels and green bottles but the key was that it also used the red star it had a similar font it had a similar kind of shaped label as well and all of those things together meant that Heineken could legitimately say it, it's, it's 
it's mimicking us. Uh, but if it was a chocolate company that had a green box with a red star, Heineken would have a harder time claiming people are being duped into thinking this yes. has anything to do with us. And and having a trademark on a colour doesn't necessarily mean you have a rock solid, solid claim either. You know, to stick with chocolate companies, Cabri and Nestle were until relatively recently locked into a, into a long, long running legal battle over purple. Um, Cadbury had trademarked the use of it on chocolate bars in 1995 yeah. it then tried to expand that trademark and Nestle came along and said no hang on a second you can't cover all sweets with, with, with purple and say it's your colour and Cadbury had to back down in the end It's so petty isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> are there any colours then that are truly protected? Well, uh, this is really petty now uh, there are kind of uh, um, Vanta Black is what claims to be the blackest black in the world apparently it reflects so little light that it's kind of like looking into a black hole when mm-hmm. you, you see it it's owned by a British company called Nanosys but the protection is more to do with the physics of it rather than the colour because it uses a a, a special coating to actually make this possible and it has practical uses in things like satellites and infrared uh, cameras but it caused controversy because the uh, artist Anish Kapoor about six years ago obtained an exclusive artistic licence to use it in in art only and other artists criticised him saying he's basically using his money and influence to to block off other artists from using these materials Uh, and to get to the petty part one artist Stephen Semple went so far to develop what he called the pinkest pink and also extremely dark blacks called Black 2.0 and Black 3.0 and he's made them available to license anywhere in the world to anyone except Anish Kapoor. So that's art. What about trademarked food? Certain types of food are protected. I don't mean the brands I mean the actual food itself. Uh, tender stem broccoli is, is an example of this. No. It's, it's a trademark yeah, held by Sak- Sakata Seed Company, a Japanese firm that developed the vegetable. It's not even really broccoli. It's a broccoli Chinese kale hybrid. Apparently it took about eight years to develop uh, and it started appearing in supermarkets in the late 90s and, and this trend of getting legal protection on a variety of food is, is actually quite popular in fruit and veg particularly apples uh, you, you mentioned Pink Ladies uh, as an example of that lots of companies trying to blend apple types together uh, to get the best of both worlds maybe you know the sweetness of one and the, the shelf life of another or the you know so that it will suit the, the, the harvest season in that particular country or protect against disease or whatever it might be so Pink Lady is a trademark brand but it's applied to a specific patented variety of, of apple called Crips Pink, which is a hybrid of Lady Williams and Golden Delicious Apple. Uh, a couple of years ago, a new variety of apple came out in the US called Cosmic Crisp, and that took 20 years of development. There was a $10 million marketing campaign around it. Apparently, the big selling point is that it can last in a fridge for up to a year. So that's well, because of this special breeding. They can keep it. Yeah. Like if you want, if you, do you want no. an apple after a year? No. Um, so now let's talk about sounds, Adam. Yeah, lots of sounds have trademark protection or sound mark protection. Uh, Darth Vader's breathing, uh, breathing is trademarked by Lucasfilm, now a subsidiary of Disney. Yeah, and the the, uh, the hum of the lightsaber is also that's another one that Lucasfilm has. Uh, NBC Universal has a trademark on the that that sound that's used in Law and Order. People will identify it. Let's hear that. That's it? Yeah, that's it, yeah. Very, very short, yeah. It's also used, it's also used in what's called an audio logo. So there's short kind of stings that, that would identify a product or a brand. So that little startup chime people remember from Windows, that was that was an audio logo of, a logo of Microsoft. Same goes when you turn on your Mac or your iPhone. That little chime yeah. is, is often copyrighted. Uh, and there's a really famous one that used to be played on the end of ads to tell you that you had a Pentium processor. 
Ah, oh, that's very familiar, yeah, isn't it? that's Intel. So, and again, that's the idea that it's immediately identifiable. You know what the product is based on, on that sound. It, 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 this one is more of a song than a, than a jingle, but the Happy Birthday song was legally protected until recently uh, as well. It's, it's based on a song written by American sisters Patty and Mildred Hill in the 1890s. It ended up in the hands of uh, record label Warner Chapel. They charge a licence fee for any use in a TV, film, radio, anything like that. At one stage, they're earning $2 million a year from Happy Birthday alone. Extraordinary. Uh, but the copyright was deemed invalid in 2016 uh, in the US because it was it was deemed that the, the copyright covered the piano arrangement, but not the, the tune or, the, or not the lyrics or the melody. Uh, they ended up having to pay back $14 million uh, in licence fees. The, the, the copyright also lapsed in the EU in 2017, which is 70 years after Patty Hill died. So that's when copyright lapses on these things. So they had to pay back money on that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if jingles are, are trademarked, you, I would imagine catchphrases are too. This brings us to Arnie's Hasta La Vista, baby. Right? Yeah, exactly. That was, that was trademarked uh, back in 2007. That was actually 15 years after the words were first uttered in Terminator 2. So, But but it is owned by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, Let's Get Ready to Rumble uh, was trademarked by ring announcer Michael Buffer. Uh, he started using the phrase in the mid-80s, uh, obtained a trademark in the early 90s. Apparently he's earned hundreds of millions of dollars licensing this out. It appears in you know in ads and video games and so on. Mm. He started just as a ring announcer at boxing and, and now has hundreds of millions because of this little catchphrase he came up with. I wonder but, about Arnie and his one. Is it more to protect it so it remains his rather than to make money off it? I think there's, there's probably an element, I mean, I'm sure he's going to make money off it, he can make money off but it's also, yeah, to protect it, to stop others using yeah. what would be seen as his image. Mm. There's, uh, there's, I don't know if people know the guy, Guy Ferrari, who used to present uh, a, a food TV show on the Food Network. He uh, copyrighted his name and they are trademarked his name and the, the idea was to stop his name appearing on foods and people thinking it was licensed by him when it wasn't actually Fair so enough. you know it was just you know a yeah. kind of protection uh, but some really really strange ones in, in the catchphrases Paris Hilton has a trademark on That's Hot that's based on what she used to say a lot in that TV show she did many many years ago apparently she won a case against Hall- Hallmark on the back of, of that trademark uh, Taylor Swift has a copyright on This Sick Beat which is a line that popped up in her song Shake It Off She's, she actually has loads of trademarks and you go through the records um, she has things like because we never go out of style and party like it's 1989 which I'd say Prince's estate probably have a claim there because it's oh, clearly, sure. de- clearly derivative yeah. of him um, others then of what, what you call physical trademarks so Usain Bolt's lightning bolt pose that one that one yeah. the arms uh, to the side yeah, yeah that's it you, you, that's trademarked um, I'm not allowed to do have I to pay him you're going to have to pay that? him now yeah oh, unfortunately yeah even though you need it on radio but uh, <laughs> Adam Maguire from Today with Claire Byrne And after Monday's documentary on one, Blackrock Boys, about abuse at Blackrock College and other spirit-and-run schools, another day of harrowing testimony from victims on Liveline. A health warning, as we call it, about today's programme, dealing with issues of a very, very sensitive uh, nature, especially if there are young ears around. So uh, please use your judgment. Uh, because we are going back to more allegations about Blackrock College, more new allegations about Kimmage Manor, uh, um, also run by the Holy Ghost Order. And they now, the confusion people are, listeners are getting is the Holy Ghost Order changed their name to the Spiritans. Um, now, I don't know why they changed their name, but it was the Holy Ghost Order running all these goods. And as someone said, the Spiritans sounds like a, the name of a rugby team from uh, Northern England. But anyway, uh, when we refer to the Spiritans, which are now called, we're referring to the Holy Ghost Order, which they were uh, then then called. Now, um, on Monday's uh, documentary here on RT Radio 1, you heard from David and Mark Ryan. Now, there is another man who was referred to in the programme. His name is Michael. 
Um, and he is David Ryan's childhood friend, and indeed they're still friends. And uh, David and his older brother told their story, uh, how it's called Black Rock Boys, how there were three abusers at Black Rock College and they abused the two, the two siblings. Uh, that documentary mentioned that another boy, David's friend, was also abused and was also involved in the court cases that followed. And we're now joined by that third boy, Michael, who was abused by father Tom O'Byrne at Black Rock College in the late 1970s and early 1980s. Uh, Michael, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Joe. Uh, Michael, why have you decided to speak out now? Um, I want to speak out in support of David and Mark for their tremendous courage and yeah. the documentary they made, but also because I think it's it's the right thing to do. I mean, I've been fighting this fight with myself and with the school in many ways for many, many years, not getting anywhere. And um, I pay tribute to you for making it a national debate and think it really needs to be resolved once and for all. And you were, and as people like you have made it a national debate, Michael, in fairness, and I'd point out that so far, as we've heard, the, uh, the Holy Ghost Order have told us they have 233 allegations against 77 individuals. That is probably, if you go back to the Ferns report and the Ferns government inquiry, set up, by the way, by Michal Martin uh, when he was Minister for Health, um, the Ferns inquiry um, dealt with 100 allegations. There are now 233 allegations and rising against individuals, uh, 77 um, individuals at least, at least who were um, uh, either members of the Holy Ghost Order or indeed uh, a number, a small number of lay teachers are also being mentioned as well at this stage. Tell us how you forced, or indeed how he forced Father Tom O'Brien as he was then, came across you, Michael. I was a student in Willow Park and Black College, and um, to be honest, I can't remember exactly how it happened, but it started off very similar to David, um, with swimming lessons, private swimming lessons, and evolved from there. I mean, he, he abused us all as part of the swimming lessons that he gave us. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he also um, abused me elsewhere as well. And was this on the grounds of Black Rock College, can I ask? Yes, it was. I mean, I, I can tell you if you like. I mean, it was mm-hmm. in the swimming pool. Um, he used to, I mean, it was well documented in the in the documentary yeah. that David and Mark uh, made, the way the what he used to do with asking us to model different types of um, swimming, well, thongs, for, yeah. um, which was awful. Um, uh, and also he, he abused me in, in Clareville, in the priest's house where the priest used to live. And, and, in, the, in the and he took you to his room. He did. Okay. He did. No, the, he, the reason um, the reason I'm asking, the reason I'm trying to make that point, Michael, is that um, surely somebody else should remark on the fact that there was a very young boy going out in and out of a priest's bedroom. But anyway, that, that was one thing. Even at the time it happened, that was one thing that I was shocked at. I and mean, he used to take me to his bedroom and molest me while he uh, had me read from the Bible for him. I don't know, it must have been one of his jollies, which was a very creepy thing to do. But 
walking out of his bedroom, my eyes were, I'm sure, as big as saucers, and I passed priests in the corridor leaving the yeah. leaving his room. And if they didn't confront him, ask why there was a young child in his bedroom, they were either complicit in it, mm-hmm. maybe they were doing it themselves, I'm not sure how much they collaborated on it, but at least there was a, a cover-up or a a culture of intimidation where the people who lived there didn't speak about it, but it kept the abuse um, covered up for many, many years, far too many years. So Michael ended up at the Supreme Court and he spoke about that experience. Now, you, along with uh, David and Mark, uh, decided to uh, take your case, as I say, to a higher court, but that, that didn't work out as expected either. Unfortunately not, no. I mean, he had the resources. However, he got the resources to pay for a legal defence that ended up getting his case um, up to the Supreme Court where it was dismissed. And David, Mark and I had to go to Dublin to give evidence in the High Court, which was a harrowing experience um, looking back on it. But even that, we didn't get the justice we deserved. And was was the Supreme Court dismissal based on um, lapse of time, as they call it? My recollection was that it was based on his age. Yeah, which is, and you you may I don't know whether you're familiar, Michael. I know you're out of the country, but uh, familiar with the case of George Gibney, the swimming coach, and he managed to again go to the Supreme Court and he managed to get the case thrown, or his legal team did on his behalf, managed to get the case thrown out because of. Uh, lapse lapse of time since the and memory yeah. since the allegations were made. But anyway, uh, in 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 the court case where where you cross examined, I was cross examined, and that was that was one of the things that I still makes my blood run cold. The, the way I was cross examined by his uh, defence counsel was the line of argument went along the along the lines of to relate what had happened, the actual facts of the event. Yeah. But then the um, the defence, his, his, his lawyer and barrister, made the completely inaccurate assumption that because I had been successful in my career afterwards, that yeah. the impact was not so great on me, although it's obviously impossible to look into somebody's heart and see how it's affected yeah. them. But to treat somebody... To treat a criminal act and measure it against the litmus test of the invisible impact rather than the crime that was committed is shocking. I mean, it's it's similar in my mind to the way, unfortunately, many women are treated in rape cases where um, circumstances are brought up like what they were wearing, where they were walking and so Mm -hmm. on. It's not relevant. A crime was committed. That's what should be measured. And Michael wants to know about those legal costs. You want to know how much the Holy Ghost Order paid in legal fees uh, for these High Court yes. case and the Supreme Court case? Yes. Okay. And they, they, I can imagine it was a significant amount of money. Okay. And they could have said, no, we're not going to pay for a Supreme Court case. We pay for High Court. But anyway, um, this stopped the three of you getting a chance of, of justice. Um, and you say... And there's a there's a there's a bit of uh, backlash as well on our phone lines. I can tell you honestly about the name. You, you we are tarring the name of Black Rock College and everyone who went to it and the brand of Black Rock College. But, we're but not, I think that that needs to be the case because there 
Continuing to send your children to a school like Blackrock College that has such terrible double standards, you really have to question why you're doing that. They, they enjoy your reputation within the country um, because so many uh, political leaders and captains of industry came from it. But the values they teach when they say one thing and do another are really not Irish values that you want to live by today. And after the court case, uh, Michael, what was your reaction and what did you do? I tried to engage with them afterwards. We were so disappointed that we did not get the justice we deserved mm. that I, I wrote these recommendations to them. Mm -hmm. um, after I had gone to them and said, look, I, I want some kind of compensation for this. And they, they did offer me a settlement, which I accepted, and I... Um, and I wrote these recommendations and had a mm. conversation with the provincial and the previous provincial to talk through these things. But it was very, very clear that once the settlement was made, they did not want to deal with me. And it was a courtesy call just to close the book. And even though you some said... of the recommendations in there, were, I think, are very valid ones. I was calling for um, the victim of child sex abuse to be placed on the board of the board of governors for each of the schools to make sure that there's a watchful eye um, over what's going on, the safeguarding procedures, to make sure that periodically they're checked and audited. But that even that simple gesture to the victims was dismissed but just to give just to give your your document even by the way would you would you be prepared to uh, submit this document if there was an inquiry absolutely okay um or to, to the in the public domain you see you have things like um identity the objective of this section you write about is to identify the extent of the problem you go into detail then apologize and accept blame for what has happened you could you go into uh, again detail how that how that should be done provide redress and compensation again you again it's a spreadsheet and you have a number of paragraphs on how that can be done we then we, and then it goes on to the next page open then you say for both victims and family openly discuss how things are going to change and you've won, you've you have a ten point plan uh, you're offering to them, and um, then you say ensure that mistakes to pass are not repeated in the future, and parents can send their children to Holy Ghost schools with confidence. And then you have in that section you go into school governance and culture. You list the radical changes that should be uh, initiated. It's it, they got a lot of advice. You know they got a lot of advice from you, Michael, and they got and a lot it, of saying the hardest. No, your point. You the hardest that. part, the hardest part of writing this, after feeling so beat up by what happened, was to write it in a way that would help, try to help them at least continue in their role. My firm belief is that they should have nothing to do with education. I know they have supposedly taken a step back, mm -hmm. but they should in no way be involved as an order with anything to do with young people or the education of young people. They have a, a poor moral compass and shouldn't do this. So that, that section on um, helping them think what they might possibly do to regain their reputation was written with a heavy heart. And you're saying it's redundant now? Is it? Because nothing was done. They, they've yeah. proven this document was written 10 years ago. And they, in, in, to my knowledge, nothing 
in this document or anything similar has been undertaken by the Holy Ghost orders. That's Michael on the live line with Joe Duffy. And to the TV programme, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, and MP Matt Hancock's entrance to the show. Well, the UK's former health minister, Matt Hancock, made his debut on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here last night. And he only had his foot in the door when his fellow campmate, ITV news presenter Charlene White, questioned him about why he had come on to the show. And here's what he had to say. Why did it? Yeah, why are you here? Because there's honest truth is because... There's, it's, there's so few ways in which politicians can show that we're human beings. So I just thought that'd be, it'd be good to see that. And I like, you know, I've got a sense of adventure. So you kind of want thought people to see you for you? I hope so. Yeah. So if I can use this to sort of peel myself back a bit... Yeah. ..and just be... ..just be but you, me, But I better. can imagine it would not have gone down well at all at home. Well... Gotta, you have to expect that. Yeah. Because... Parliament is still sitting. We're not in yeah, recess. Yeah. You know, we've but still got. I genuinely got think that because because we've now got sort of stability, that is, you know, we've had stability for all of five minutes, man. Yeah, but <laughs> the, no, but Rishi's great. He'll be fine. That's Matt Hancock there speaking to Charlene White on I'm a Celeb last night, and Scott Bryan is a TV critic and broadcaster, and he joins me on the line. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. I feel that there is a lot of drama to come here with Matt Hancock <laughs> in the jungle, especially when you see how the other campmates reacted to him mm. arriving. Yeah, I mean, that's been the real surprise. I mean, what you don't get from that clip that you just played of um, Charlene White, the ITV news journalist, is the fact that when Matt Hancock said that he is wanting to be on this to show people that he is more human, I say that the politicians are are human just like you and I, Charlene then looks directly to the camera, breaking the fourth wall. And I think (laughs) it's that scene. And it's also the scene that just in terms of the fact that we've been having a debate about whether Matt Hancock should be in I'm a Celebrity. What I did not expect was that this debate would actually take place within the camp itself. With Boy George talking about how uncomfortable he felt about his um, uh, involvement. It is something just to see play out in a rather meta way does really hurt your head. It feels like an episode of Black Mirror. It does a little and the DJ Chris Moyles uh, probably captured what everybody's thinking because he said I can't help but think he should be at work. That's what everyone's saying, right? Yeah, yeah, because I feel like there's there's no problem, I think, in terms of politicians going on to then have entertainment careers. But it tends to be the fact after they are no longer a standing MP, once they have stepped down as um, representing their constituents. And you sort of wonder, what is Matt Hancock's plan here? Is his plan that he's going to go back into politics? He's had the whip removed within the Conservative Party. But you wonder about whether he's going to go back into politics in some big way. Or is he going to therefore become a pundit, presenter, following the trajectory of other people such as Michael Portillo Mm -hmm. or Ed Balls? And I feel that trying to spin both places is an odd thing. Another thing he says that he's doing this is to create awareness for dyslexia for a cross part. Um, cross-party um, uh, sort of um, uh, initiative. I mean, this is the, the 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 frustration that I have. I'm dyslexic, and I feel that you can create awareness without having to go on TV and eat various parts of an animal. Mm. Um, and be paid and be paid handsomely for it too. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> and be paid handsomely. 
So going back to that um, debate that the housemates seem to be struggling with almost within themselves, you know, how do we react to this man? Um, I I got the impression that some of them don't agree with his politics full stop, but also they're saying, well, we have to live with him in this camp for two weeks. So we have to almost get over our our problem with him. Like Boy George was in tears, wasn't he? Because he was talking about his mother who had uh, COVID and was in hospital and he couldn't get to see her. And that for him was all he could think about when he was looking at Matt Hancock. Exactly. And I think that this is a situation in which I think has caused a lot of controversy, not just within the camp, but also a lot of people towards the channel that commissioned to make this programme, ITV, about whether basically capitalising on something which has divided public in such a vitriolic way, particularly with an individual who's so closely related to and in charge of the government's handling of the COVID pandemic, should be as a form of entertainment. But it's also the fact that at the end of the day, they are the biggest beneficiaries. The fact Mm -hmm. that it's created such a large debate is obviously mean that they're going to be having um, many um, uh, viewers. Last night's episode so far, according to early figures and early estimates, came out with about 7.9 million viewers, which is actually the fewest um, uh, viewers of the series so far, surprisingly. I think people were expecting it to be a little bit higher. But 7.9 million people watching the same program at the same time in this day and age of streaming and so many different competitors competitors is absolutely huge for ITV and yeah. they would be very happy with that. And don't forget it's the day that the Crown the new series of The Crown was released as well on Netflix. So you know taking all of those factors into account Scott it's not bad. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah it's not bad at all and I think I mean this is the weird thing about I'm a Celebrity it, it harks back this entertainment format to a, to a different age of reality TV. It was a, it's a form of TV that relies upon humiliation and I think cruelty and making people feel as uncomfortable as they possibly can. I think TV these days, if you look at other um, shows out there, they tend to be a lot more warm-hearted, a lot more supportive. Um, I think ITV gets away with this show on is just because it's only on for a few weeks a year. It feels a bit like a guilty pleasure. Yeah. And also the fact that it's able to create such massive talking points like this. Mm-hmm. That's Scott Bryan from Today with Claire Byrne. And on the Ray Darcy show, solo sailor Pat Lawless and his plan to sail non-stop around the world. Now, Pat Lawless joins me on the phone. Uh, we'll find out where he is shortly. But a reminder about Pat, we've been tracking his progress the last while. He's 66, he's a solo sailor, and he hoped to become the first Irish person ever to sail solo non-stop, and that's important, non-stop around the world, in a sailing race called the Golden Globe Race. Uh, Pat was amongst the leaders sailing in fourth place um, in the South Atlantic. But unfortunately, things haven't been going according to plan. Hello, Pat. Hello, Ray. How are you? Uh, I'm sorry about this now, because in talking to to you, I realised how much this meant to you. Oh, yeah. I got over it. It was five or six days ago. Um, Myself steering broke and... One bush in one bear, and I was out of the race, yeah. So I'm in Cape Town, and a beautiful place, and my wife is coming down, so ah, it's not right. the end of the world. Not the end of the world, but yeah. just to remind people, your dad has gone around the world solo, your brother has done it, but this was sort of one step up from what they've achieved, because you were hoping to do it non-stop. Uh, two months yeah, in... Well, my, my father went around, and in, in his third attempt, he got around, he had good two stops. Okay. Peter is... 
He's doing it at the moment. He hasn't done it yet. Oh, he hasn't done it yet. Okay, yeah. So it's, it's a yeah. family thing. It's a family thing anyway, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, just tell people about the preparation you put in. How many how many years were you preparing for this? Four. Four years. Four right. years, yeah. yeah. The, the, the preparation is actually an interesting part of the journey. And even the, the two months sailing down here, two months in a bit, it was fantastic and a huge learning curve. Actually, two months on your own is interesting. You'll be more lonely than you think. Yeah. And, yeah, and it was, I learned so much on it, and it was a great journey, but it was better than heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. And and you're alone, you say, and alone with your thoughts. Uh, and how was that? I'd say that's the longest you've been alone with your thoughts in your life. Ever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was interesting. You, you... I'm not great at meditation, but I do transcendental meditation. Just you pick a word and repeat it just to try and clear your brain. But then I started thinking other words, like anything, love, happiness, potatoes. And I, I'd meditate on that word for a while. And things you'd never do at home. It changes you. And I've got softer. I've got more emotional. Yeah. And that. Uh, so, yeah. so, so more, in, think, more in touch with your feelings? It's it, so, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, the fact that you're alone and you have all that time to think and you think about people and the really good people and it gives you time to think, yeah, a lot of time actually. Mm. But mm. it is it is what what caught me unawares. I was more lonely than I expected. Maybe lonely is a long word, more maudlin or something, but Ah right, yeah. maudlin, right, okay, yeah. Because you had done a solo trip before but it was only two or three weeks, wasn't it? Yeah, I've done a few just training yes, for this race. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, Rita is is coming down to you, which is great down in Cape Town. That that that's lovely. Uh, how long <laughs> would it, nice for her. how long would it have taken you if you were to complete the race? Oh, eight to nine months. Okay. Eleven months was the longest in the last race. The last race was the second one. Okay. The first one was nineteen sixty eight. And another interesting thing, I really enjoyed the celestial navigation, the sun, moon, and stars. I didn't expect to enjoy it so much. That was a lovely challenge and nice. So, so you were doing it old school. You were doing it old school. Yeah, there's no modern equipment, no water makers. There's no. It's an old-fashioned vintage race, which makes it affordable. It's all good, and I really did enjoy doing this. About four hours a day, actually. Yeah. Um, because you you do more than the sights. You're trying to plot the fastest course, and that that was that was a good challenge and. And doable. I was kind mm. of nervous before the start when I behaved like, but it was no problem. And it was yeah. sort of the equivalent yeah. of the automatic pilot that let you down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a mechanical steering system and a, just one bushing. I'm trying to take it off at the moment as a crowd here can fix this and make bushings and like your lead. It's a big job. It's nothing you could do with sea. I, I really enjoyed the sail in. I was six days with no self steering and I got sheet and sailor working well. And yeah, that's another thing anyway. If you were into sailing, the sheet that did work for you. Yeah. And, and yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't do it that way. Like, but yeah. And you were in fourth place, Pat. Yeah, yeah. And the others were only short bit ahead of me. And my boat is a Southern Ocean boat. Like, I reckon I could have caught some of them. And that, you know, and that's, that's actually, as the race went on, it was about finishing rather than winning. Yes, And yeah. I thought I would finish and then I didn't. And uh. Pat Lawless on the Ray Darcy Show. And back to Liveline and callers talking about the documentary Black Rock Boys. 
Michelle Flood is the niece and victim herself of one of the men named in the programme, Father Aloysius Flood. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. this, this has brought up uh, your own uh, experiences with your uncle, uh, as yes. it was then, Father Aloysius Flood. Yes, known as Alo. Ali. Or Alo. Alo, Alo. You okay. just called Alo. him Alo. Alo, okay, you called him Alo, okay. You knew, he was yeah. a, you knew he was a priest, I presume, Michelle, when he used to visit uh, your home. Absolutely. Okay. He was very revered at, at our home. Okay. Um, look, I'm 47 years. I, I thought I would bring his name to my grave. I never thought his name would come out. The church have protected him for far too long. And even when he died, um, his funeral was kept quiet. I I think that's because they knew the level of abuse that he had done. And did did he perpetrate your uncle abuse on you, Michelle? Absolutely, yeah. Um, I've blocked out an awful lot, Joe, but um, I do remember he visited our home on every occasion, like Easter, Christmas. He used to say Mass in the front room of our home. um, And he he would... uh, He was a very um, tactile person. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of... um, What's the word for it? Um, he would basically be very touchy-feely. Okay. And he'd put your ha- his hands everywhere. Oh now, sometimes he'd get away with doing that very subtly in the yeah. company of other people. And other times it would be when I would be in bed. And he would um, go to the bathroom and pretend he was in the bathroom and then walk across the corridor and come into my room. So, you know, he was the only brother of my father. Okay. And my father never believed me that he was doing this. And I think I reported it in 1997, I think, around that date. Okay. And to the guards in Galway, Mill Street. And um, I told them if this was investigated they would be opening a can of worms because I knew that he was in St. Michael's College. He had been to Black Rock. Mm-hmm. And I I think it was common knowledge. I don't know within my family or where I knew it, but I knew that he would have touched boys as well as girls. Yeah. And... Um, as we now know. As we now know. Somebody, Joe, from the church, his superior... And a psychologist came down to interview me in Galway. Now, I don't know if that was the exact time or it was two or three years later. But when I came out of that interview, I just felt horrendous. I felt they they didn't listen. All they cared about that well, I wasn't going to bring a civil case against them. That's all they cared about. Um, I told them that my main concern was that Father Allo would be taken out of the facility of any children. Yeah. And what they did with them then is, as far as I know, he was arrested, but then he was shipped off to England for alcohol treatment. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so the church have covered for him like for forever. And I think unless there's an inquiry, I, even if it has to be very independent inquiry for any, anything to be not covered up. Covered up for far too long. Michelle there. And then later, John called Joe. John Morgan, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Joe. Um, you went to St. Michael's here in Dublin. That's correct, between 1977 and 1984. Okay. When Aloysius Flood, was he, what was his role there? And what was he, well, he, he was actually the headmaster. The headmaster, okay. And you were abused by a lay teacher who we're not naming at this stage, but um, you reported it. I did. To? I did, to, to, to uh, well, when it occurred, and um, I, I really admired the bravery of, you know, all the other callers, and Michelle, my heart goes out to you there. Look, I basically went home and told my parents. Yeah. I was away in a, a weekend in the Glen of Amal with other classmates uh, and my brother, and um, the abuse took place over two nights while we were away, and when I arrived back on the Sunday night, my mother noticed that, uh, you know, I was something wasn't right about me, and she asked me, and I told her out straight. And what, 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 what happened next? So, basically what happened next was that, and this is my memory, I'm looking at it through the lens of a, you know, 14-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I, I was told, look, go into school, don't worry about it, go straight to the headmaster, and tell him everything. So that's what I did. I obeyed. I was the eldest in the family. I was always told, look, you, you do what you're told. So I, I went in and I, I, I told. And, so, what, um, and what did Flood say? I, I can't remember the exact words, but what I, I do remember, and, and what's coming through from what Michael is saying there, um, is that he... You know, I had a number of meetings with him. He, he, he asked for a number of meetings with me, and he sort of, uh, the whole thing was kept in secrecy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what was said to my parents. Now, my father and my mother have never told me. Uh, my father's still alive this day. He's never told me what exactly happened or transpired between himself and the school. But all I can say to you is that he did ask to see me privately on a number of occasions. That nothing happened then, but he did ask me on okay. those occasions to go through in minute detail as to what had occurred in the weekend. And let's say when I was using certain phrases that a boy of 14 would use, he yeah. would call me back to the correct phrase, at the correct word to be using, and, you know, ask me to repeat it. But look, that, that was my memory at the time. I remember... Yeah. You know, he'd, he'd come down to the classroom uh, with a book or something and he'd give it to the teacher and he'd call me away or, or get the teacher to give me a book or send me up with something. Mm-hmm. And then he'd send me back to the class, you know. But nothing ever happened in relation to, in relation to uh, he never did anything to me. Um, now, other people in the school were brought in, as I said, the dean of discipline at the time was a very nice man, mm-hmm. but he, he wasn't really interested in me. And the only thing that saved me was, compared to 
in, when I think of the rest of when what's been happening in the last few days, was I had one teacher I could go to. His name was Barry. And without Barry, I wouldn't have got through this. Okay. I've never had the opportunity to thank him. I was lying in bed the last few nights, and I said, Jesus, I never thanked him for what he did for me. Like, I'm, I'm lucky. I've had a fabulous relationship. I've got a wonderful wife. Yeah. I've got three beautiful children. He has had my ups and downs with careers. And yeah. I look back and, you know, I suppose, you know, it takes a certain type of person to, you know, to have the strength at the time. When I look back at my 14-year-old self and to think that, look, I, you know, I, I, I went on. Nothing happened. You know, he yeah. wasn't taken out. My abuser wasn't removed. He was not allowed to go on school trips anymore, but he wasn't taken out of circulation, so to say. Yeah. Um, he... Uh, and he wasn't, like, what he did to you I, was a crime. Yeah, but look, at the time, you know, the whole, people didn't really believe in, you know, in, in what children were saying, or they just brushed it under the carpet. It's heartbreaking. That's John speaking out on the live line. And if this week on the radio has stirred up some difficult memories for you, you can find help and support or just someone to listen one in four, the Rape Crisis Centre or the Samaritans. There are many organisations listed at rte.ie slash helplines. And on today with Claire Byrne, climate change and its effects on plant life in Ireland. Dr Colin Kelleher from the National Botanic Gardens was talking to Claire. Tell me first of all about this pear tree in the Botanic Gardens. It was flowering a few weeks ago and that was an extraordinary thing. Explain. Uh, so this is uh, the calorie pear and it's, um, it's originally from uh, southwestern uh, or southeastern China and uh, Taiwan and so that'll be subtropical uh, climate and basically we have it growing here in the gardens and unusually at this time it, it, it's the, the leaves are starting to senesce so basically they're they're going a, a lovely sort of um, mauve red uh, but at the same time it's decides to produce loads of flowers, which is very unusual. That really shouldn't happen. That should happen in the spring. So it's kind of this odd mix of uh, flowering while it's senescing. Dr Colin Kelleher from Today with Claire Byrne. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.